Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have told us all that we need to know in order to have a spiritual life by faith alone in Christ alone and in order to grow and mature as believers. You have unfolded before our eyes in Scripture the panorama of your plan for human history and how that fits within an even greater cosmic conflict between the angels in rebellion against you and your uh, exposure of your grace, your righteousness, and justice in the midst of that angelic rebellion. Now, Father, as we continue to study these things, we pray that our eyes may, the eyes of our soul may be enlightened to the eternal truths of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The attack and invasion of planet Earth by aliens from other planets is the grist of science fiction. We are exposed to these hideous monsters who come in all sorts of spacecraft seeking to invade the planet, to enslave mankind, and to destroy everything that we hold dear. Hundreds of millions of dollars is spent every decade in trying to see if we can discover life on other planets. We, everybody wonders, are there other rational beings out there in outer space? And the Bible says, yes, there are. There is rational life out there in outer space. It's not the other races of Star Trek or Star Wars, but they are uh, beings created by God known as angels. And yes, there is a group of angels that have defected from God, that have rebelled against God, and their mission is to seek and destroy the human race and to enslave and to dominate us. These aliens are identified very clearly in the Bible as fallen angels. Some are even classified as demons. These are a group of angels that followed their leader, uh, known as Lucifer in his rebellion against God. Lucifer is also known as Halal bin Shahar, 
the shining one, the son of the dawn, according to the Hebrew in Isaiah chapter 14, which we studied. He is the one who wants to be like God, the creature who wants to usurp the authority, the throne, the rule of God, and to rule all of the creatures for his own glory and his uh, own privilege. The course of this rebellion we refer to as the angelic conflict. It's also called the angelic rebellion, the conflict of the ages, the invisible war. There are many different ways in which uh, theologians and Bible teachers have uh, explained this conflict down through uh, the centuries. It's very important for every believer to understand this conflict because whether you understand it or not, whether you fully believe it or not, you are part of it. Even if you're an unbeliever, you're a part of it because as we learn from 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan, who's the God of this age, is blinding the minds of the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel. So it's important for us to understand it because once you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are indeed enlisted within the Lord's army. We are part of that group that fights a spiritual warfare. This is a warfare that's described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We're all a part of it. And because at the instant of salvation you become a soldier enlisted in this angelic conflict, you have to be trained. You have to learn what your weapons are. And the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the flesh, as uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, as well as in other passages, but they are weapons related to the spiritual truth of God's Word. Last time we saw that our spiritual life is very much a part of this angelic rebellion. And your own uh, attentiveness to your spiritual life is not really an option. Oh, it is in one sense. We have the free will to choose whether or not to uh, really exploit all that God has provided for us. But there are far too many people who think that, well, I don't see the immediate impact of that. I don't see the angels or the demons around me. I don't really have any any uh, direct uh, understanding of this spiritual warfare, my role in it, so I'll pay attention to my spiritual life a little more uh, next next week or next year when I get a little older or somehow when I get my business established or after I get my education or when I get the kids raised. You know, at some time in the future, we will pay attention to our spiritual life. It's always easy for us, it seems, to rationalize our focus on our spiritual life and think that somehow we've learned enough, we know enough, we've grown enough to where we have made it. But even the most advanced of us spiritually are far from where we ought to be in our spiritual growth in order to fulfill our roles and responsibilities in the angelic conflict. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you indeed are a soldier in this army and you can either be a spiritual hero, or you can be a spiritual casualty, and the choice is yours. Unfortunately, we live in an era today when most Christians unwittingly are spiritual casualties. They have fallen prey to the deceptive snares and traps that Satan has set out to ensnare our own sin natures, to attract our sin natures so that we find pleasure in that which distracts us from our own spiritual life, 
and yet we come under a tremendous amount of self-deception and self-justification in just trying to uh, rationalize our focus on other things rather than our spiritual life. Last time we saw that the focus in this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in is our thinking. Spiritual warfare isn't going out and getting engaged in some kind of direct encounter with the devil. That's what you run into in a lot of circles today. You watch some of these uh, tele-evangelists and preachers, and, and they talk a lot about spiritual warfare. In fact, starting back in the in the 80s, spiritual warfare took on a whole new tone, and, and the way it became defined was not the way the Bible defines it, but it became redefined in terms of this sort of personal attack or assault, personally fighting the devil or demons, casting out demons, that kind of thing. And it led, again, to a complete distraction. The Bible teaches that the battlefield for spiritual warfare takes place between your ears. The battlefield for spiritual warfare has to do with your thought life, how you think and what you think. And too often people want to restrict that to simply not thinking in terms of mental attitude sins, and that's true. It is a uh, recognition that certain uh, mental attitude sins, emotional sins, should not dominate our thinking. But it goes far beyond that. For we have to learn how to think about everything in life from a biblical viewpoint. We have to learn how to think about every realm of God's creation as God thinks about it. For his creation is not just limited to our spiritual life, is it? His creation involves every dimension. It involves everything that you can possibly think of from uh, the sciences to the arts to even drama, everything within the purview of the home. Uh, don't you think that God has something to say about everything he created and everything he instituted? Of course he does. And we can either think about it the way God thinks about it, which is what we call divine viewpoint, or we can think about it in terms of our own experience, in terms of, of what is popular in the culture in which we live, and that's called, sometimes we call that human viewpoint, the Bible calls it worldliness and likens it in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, to the thinking of demons. And so the Bible is very clear that you are, at any given moment in your life, as a believer, either thinking like God would think, or you're thinking like a demon would think. Now, most of us want to say, oh, there's some middle ground there. No, there's no middle ground according to the Scripture. It's either... You're thinking biblically, divine viewpoint, or you're thinking in terms of human viewpoint, no matter how good and moral that may be, it's still uh, thinking independently of God's plan, purposes, and revelation. So Scripture says that we are to war, not according to the flesh, but according to the principles given out in Scripture. Verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And these strongholds are defined in terms of thinking, in terms of intellectual thought, arguments, rationalizations, ideas, concepts, ways of looking at art, literature, science. Uh, we are to cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every, every thought. Can you think of anything that's left out? 
every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ. So we see that this must be a lifelong endeavor. It challenges us to think about our thinking. I had a seminary professor once who used to say, it's tough enough to think for most people. They wake up in the morning, they have to have five or six cups of coffee before they even have uh, dendrites that are wiggling enough to recognize uh, one another. And then you have to go through the day and, and think instead of react, instead of emote. But that's tough for most people. But what's really tough is when you have to start thinking about your thinking. You have to think about why do you think what you think? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you hold the values that you hold? Where do they come from? Have they simply been instilled by your, in you, by your parents, and by your culture, and by your peers? Or do they really come from the Word of God? You have to break everything down, and of course we can only do that under the guidance and direction of God, the Holy Spirit. An illustration I've used many times, it's uh, most people come to Christ and they have a problem in their life or two problems, or some people have eight or nine problems, and it's sort of like a buying an old house, and that's what their, their life is. It's an old house, and it's got some structural problems, and they want God to come in and fix it, and they look at the Holy Spirit as an interior designer who's going to come in and put on new wallpaper in this wall and put some new curtains in this room and maybe take out the old carpet and put hardwood floors down over here and, and paint the outside, put on some good vinyl siding, and, and just spruce things up a lot. And unfortunately, that's how the Christian life is presented and taught in, in too many churches. But what God the Holy Spirit's going to do when you get saved is he shows up with a bulldozer. And he wants to take down the entire old edifice foundation and all. Because the old foundation was built on rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, some sort of autonomous human viewpoint system. And he wants to replace that foundation with revelation. And then he wants to rebuild your life, your thinking, from the ground up. And the only way that can happen is through a dedicated, disciplined, continuous study of God's Word. That's why we have a Bible class more than just on Sunday morning. If I could, I would do it every night, but that takes away from a lot of other responsibilities that people have, including myself. We all have families. We all have other responsibilities in life. But that's the value of living in today's uh, world of technology where you have DVDs and MP3 players and cassette players and all kinds of things that allow you to get uh, doctrine in many different ways to take it, listen on your way to work, on your way home, during lunch, whatever it is. But you need to take in the Word of God on a daily basis because it's the Word of God that washes and cleanses our mind of a lot of garbage, refocuses our attention on what the real priorities are, and it is the only true stress relief that we ever have in life. Now, last time I finished uh, by focusing on the divine mandate in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that is really part of our study. I'm going to skip that chart for now due to lack of time since we had... Uh, communion this morning. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter says, be sober. And the Greek word there is not a word that emphasizes uh, the opposite of being drunk. 
the opposite of being inebriated. It's a word that emphasizes objective thought, being uh, stable in your thinking, having thought that is based on uh, eternal objective reality so that you are relaxed in your thinking, you have objective values. So we are to be sober, we are to be vigilant. That means to be ever alert and watchful, being aware that we can very easily just suck up false teaching, false ideas. We can so easily become distracted. We can easily rationalize our involvement in our responsibilities at work. I think in the last 20 years, I've seen pressure, especially upon men in the workplace, uh, pressure intensify. And studies back this up is early, back in the, in the early 1970s, one man could work 40 hours a week and support a family of four to support that same family at that same lifestyle level, that same level of affluence by 1986, took a man and a woman, mom and dad, both working 60 hours a week just to produce the same lifestyle that the family of four had before. That was because of the inflation that came at the end of the 80s as a result of uh, many other factors in, in the culture. But we've seen the purchase power of the dollar erode so much, and so this has put great pressure on people. And then with the advent of computers... We all thought we would go from a 40 to a 30-hour work week. Those of you who are old enough to have been in college back or taken sociology courses or business management courses back in the late 60s or 70s, they used to have this utopic view that once all this technology came into place, uh, we would see the work week reduced from 40 hours to 30 hours. Well, what they didn't count on was the fact that all this technology breaks down. And so you now work 80 hours a week, you're only working 20 at your job, but you spend the other 60 on hold with uh, customer service trying to figure out why the programs aren't working, right? <laughs> Reformatting your hard drives and everything else that, that goes with the technology. So now people work twice as much as they did, and it's very easy to let their priorities drop and all of a sudden realize that as time gradually goes by, that somehow they're not spending as much time in the Word as they were five or ten years ago, especially if you've become successful. And with that success and the prosperity test, it's very easy to lose that moment-by-moment dependence on God that you had to have when you were young and growing and learning and trying to figure out if you could pay the bills at the end of the month. So this is something that happens today. And if you're a father, I see young fathers out here, uh, some of you are middle-aged, some of you are grandfathers, but if you're a father, that's your responsibility to oversee the spiritual development in the home, not to delegate it to your wife, but for you to be involved and exercise that leadership as a, as a husband and as a father and to set the role model for your children on the priority of the Word of God. I'll never forget uh, when I was in my first year being a pastor, and uh, I was becoming aware of the fact that the evangelical church in America, for the po- most part, has been very, very feminized. And in many congregations, there are fewer than 30% men involved in the congregation. Some, it's, it's much less than that. We have a very feminized evangelical church, and men fail to take positions of, of spiritual leadership 
in the home, and in the local church. And this little boy was overheard saying to his mother, why do I need to go to church? Daddy doesn't go to church. And his father, I don't think, was even a believer, but that was the that was what he was learning, was that church is for girls and for women. It's not for men. And yet, if you really understand the Word of God, the most masculine thing that a man can do is to learn to be who he is in the Lord Jesus Christ and to take the Word of God and let that reshape his whole identity as a male and as a leader. As Peter goes on, he says, we're to be vigilant, we're to watch out for these things that easily distract us because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan has probably never paid a whole lot of attention to anybody in this room. However, he has a vast army of millions of demons, and he has uh, instituted a number of thought systems that are very attractive and very popular, and it is through these demons and through his thought systems, known as the uh, worldliness in the Bible, that he easily distracts uh, believers from the truth of the Word of God. But we are told to resist him. The Greek there is from the verb histemi, which means to stand firm. It is a defensive term. It's not this uh, offensive term that you run into with some people wanting to go beat up the devil. It is a defensive term. We have to set up a fortification around our soul, and that fortification comes from the weapons of spiritual warfare defined in Ephesians 6, 10, and following, and which we'll get into eventually, but it focuses on understanding the Word of God, which builds a defensive fortress around our soul. Now, there is a progression to this conflict historically, and we need to understand it, that Satan, as we see in, in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, is continuously attacking the human race. And we can categorize those attacks in two ways. One is that they are direct assaults, and the second is that there are indirect assaults. So I started developing this chart uh, the other day to help us understand, just get an overview of Satan's assaults on the human race. We have, as I've said already, direct assaults or direct attacks. And by this I mean that Satan or demons are directly involved in attacking someone. And so there aren't that many of these, per se, in Scripture, but they are very important to understand. Most attacks are indirect attacks. He uses some other means in order to assault, to distract, to tempt, to defeat the believer. So we're going to focus on direct assaults in terms of uh, how it's laid out in history. I want to go through the Scriptures on this. And the first direct assault takes place in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, this is the temptation of Eve and then Adam, and the fall of Adam is the direct result of the assault of Satan disguised as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Then we have a second direct attack, which occurs just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 6. This is the attack of those that are called the sons of God. 
and there's an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. It's an assault on the seed of the woman. Remember, after Genesis 3 and Adam's uh, fall into sin, part of the uh, part of the curse was that the serpent upon the serpent was that the serpent would have his head crushed by the seed of the woman, that the seed of the serpent would be crushed on the head, but the serpent would, in the process, uh, have a uh, temporary wounding of the heel of the seed of the woman. And so there's that initial introduction of the gospel. Theologians call it the proto-evangelium, the first hint that God is going to provide a deliverer for mankind. Grace was there even in the midst of judgment. And that term, seed of the woman, is a term that is vital to understand what's going to happen throughout history in terms of God's redemptive plan. It's kind of an odd term because seed, sperma, in the Greek uh, translation, the Septuagint, is associated with the male's reproductive system, not the female. So it seems like an odd, uh, odd phrase there, an odd construction. And the term seed of the woman captures our attention. And that becomes a focal point in the book of Genesis. And so the first major assault of Satan, a direct assault through his uh, demons, through various fallen angels, identified as sons of God, a term for, a term for, uh, for angels in the Bible, in the Old Testament, takes place in Genesis chapter 6. We'll look at that a little later on. As you go through the Old Testament period, there are no direct assaults. There's a lot of indirect assaults on Abraham, on Abraham's descendants, anti-Semitism throughout the Old Testament, various assaults upon the people of God, the Jews, uh, during the Old Testament period. But the next time we really see Satan directively, directly active is in the period of Christ and the life of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, we have the temptations, where the three temptations uh, of Christ, where Satan seeks to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, give his allegiance to, to Satan rather than to God. And then uh, during the period of the incarnation, we see a heavy emphasis on demon possession. So we'll need to talk a little bit about what demon possession is and what it's not and what the solution is. But it's interesting that you don't have any examples of demon possession throughout the Old Testament. None. You don't have any reference to demon possession in the epistles in the New Testament. But you suddenly have this uh, host of demonic activity when the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate and begins to walk on the face of of the earth. So we'll talk about demon possession and then the major assault on Christ by Satan as the as the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. Uh, he wounds him at the cross. But there's that attack on the cross. Then we come into the modern church age. And I believe the primary assault in the church age is indirect and not direct. And the solution is the Word of God. Then the church age ends with the rapture, and we go into the seven-year period of the tribulation. And during the tribulation period, as we'll see as we go through our study in Revelation, that there are three demonic assaults on the human, human race. Uh, the first two are described in Revelation chapter 9. The third is described in Revelation chapter 12. And these are 
uh, insidious assaults that take place, and it just boggles the mind as you read them and interpret what they must mean uh, literally. And then we, the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. The false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and at the end of the millennial kingdom, he is released, and we have the final Gog and Magog revolt that is described in Revelation chapter 20. So this is the structure of Satan's assaults on the human race in terms of direct assaults. And then we'll look at indirect assaults where we need to talk a lot about the whole concept of demon influence, worldliness, human viewpoint thinking, and how those all connect together. That's the most insidious because most people don't recognize all the crummy things, all of the superficial things, all the false things that float around in your head that you uh, run your life by. And that's just demon influence. So the only way to drive that out is the Word of God. So let's just look this morning as we are a little short on time because we had the Lord's table to begin with and we have our walkthrough next door uh, afterwards. So I just want to look briefly at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Adam has been created and placed in the garden. He has been given a helper, originally named, identified as Isha. The man is Ish. He has a name Adam, but the woman is simply referred to in Genesis chapter 2 as Isha. She is taken from the side of man, and her primary mission is to serve as an assistant to man. Now, we live in a, the post-feminist era when every woman sort of has bred into their thinking from the culture around us that being a helper or an assistant is such a demeaning task. But what's interesting is that the only other place, in, the only other person in all of Scripture that is defined by this word "aitzer," this word assistant or helper, is God himself. So if you think that being an assistant or a helper as a woman to, to your husband is a place of, uh, that's demeaning, a place of lesser significance, then you'd have to say that's true of God himself. Sounds rather blasphemous to me. You see, that's just one way in which human viewpoint thinking just sort of leaks into your thinking and influences the way you perhaps think about the role of women, the role of men, the role of marriage. So the woman is created to be an aitzer, to be a uh, teammate with the man, to help him in fulfilling God's uh, mission as being uh, representatives of God on planet Earth as image bearers. And they're given one prohibition, God says in Genesis 1, I mean 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man. This is before the woman comes along because he's the spiritual head. It was his responsibility to teach her. So God directs his instruction to the head of the, of the family, the head of the marriage. And he says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. See, God's grace is abundant and sufficient. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Hebrew uses an interesting construction there. 
uses a cal infinitive absolute along with a cal perfect verb. It looks like a doubling, so some people have erroneously taken that as talking about two different deaths. It's not. It is used numerous times in Genesis. If you try to double it any other place, it ends up with a meaningless statement. It is a Hebrew idiom that means something is immediately and certainly going to happen. And what God is saying is at the instant that you eat of it, you will die. Count on it. You, you can be more sure of this than anything else, that the instant you, your teeth, break the flesh of that fruit, you will die. And that's what happened to Adam. At the instant that he ate of the fruit, he died spiritually, not physically. Physical death is just one of the many consequences of spiritual death and separation from God. So this was the prohibition. Now, we come to the drama of chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, we're told, first time of his mentioned, and we get his identification later on in Scripture, especially in Revelation chapter 12, that this serpent of old is the devil himself. Now the serpent was more cunning. He's crafty. He's subtle, the, the Hebrew indicates. He's been observing the man and the woman, and he has figured out a way to make an end run around the man and to find the weak spot. So he is more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, as God indeed said, notice the subtlety there, he doesn't have a direct assault on the truthfulness of God's command he raises a question, asks a somewhat rhetorical question perhaps, to get the woman to think differently, to think according to Satan's categories and not the categories that God has predefined. And see, that's one of the subtle ways, going back to 2 Corinthians 10, that we take every thought captive for Christ. These, these strategies that Satan has to distract us are strategies related to thinking. And in very subtle ways, he gets us to think uh, in, in wrong categories. But once we start thinking in terms of those wrong categories, then we're, then we're in trouble. Uh, you can uh, easily get caught up in something like this. I might ask you if uh, some man, if, if you've stopped beating your wife yet. Well, you know, if you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, you're in trouble. So you have to think about that and, and just not even address the question or do an end run around it. But if you get trapped by certain questions and you begin to answer them, you've already lost the battle. And that's what happens to the woman here because Satan questions God's veracity. He says, uh, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice how he just flipped the way God said it. God said you shall eat of every tree. Notice how positive and expansive that is. But when Satan comes along, he introduces the word no, which in Hebrew is just a real small two-consonant word low. And he introduces that, and he just flips the meaning and the orientation. It goes from negative to I mean, from positive to negative, from expansive to restrictive. God doesn't want you to have any fun. God doesn't want you to be happy. 
He says, did God, God really say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. See, now she's added something to the word of God. See, this is forever the problem that we face with assaults on the word of God through history. You either have people adding to the Word of God with tradition, with legalism, with religious activity and ritual, or you have people taking away from the Word of God. This was true in the early church. In the second century after Christ, you had two great heretical movements that came up within the ranks of Christendom. The first was were those who followed a teacher in Rome by the name of Marcion, and Marcion was a rationalist, and he was anti-Semitic. And so anything in the New Testament that smacked of anything positive toward the Jews had to be uh, taken out. They really hadn't put the canon together yet. He was the first person to put out a canon, and it was this truncated canon. You couldn't have Matthew in there because that was very pro-Jewish. Uh, you didn't have Mark in there. Uh, you only had Luke. And then uh, 11 of Paul's epistles. The rest of them were a little too positive towards the Jews. Of course, you couldn't have Peter's um, uh, writings in there and the others. They were, they were too Jewish. So he had a very uh, abbreviated canon of only 11 books. In other words, he's taking away from the Word of God. And then the next group that rose up a little while later were the followers of a former Phrygian uh, priest who uh, worshipped, had, had been involved in a lot of... Uh, of uh, of worship related to uh, Bacchus in, uh, in Turkey. And this guy's name was Montanus. And he had new revelation from the Holy Spirit. And he had a couple of good-looking uh, priestesses who went along with him, and that always added a little pizzazz to his presentation. And so he attracted a lot of people with his new revelations. So he's adding to the Word of God. And you have the same thing today. You have the Charismatics, who are the heirs of the Montanus, who are adding revelation. God is still speaking to us today. And on the other hand, you have the liberal rationalists who come along with their razor blades and say, well, let me see. You have the Jesus seminar people who say, Jesus didn't really do that. He didn't say this. He couldn't have said that. And when they get through with their razor blade, you have one page left in the Bible that maybe Jesus said. So you have the same problem today. And that is one of the subtle ways in which Satan continues to attack the church is by questioning the word of God and its veracity. Verse 4, after the, after the woman has misstated God's command, the serpent just directly contradicts God. You won't die. Oh, God said you'd die. Nah, you won't die. Why? Because God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open. See, first he challenges the fact that God's just restrictive. He doesn't want you to He's already just very subtly slipped that in there. God doesn't want you to have something. Now he's going to say, well, God doesn't want you to have it because it's going to be really good for you. You're going to be as great as God is. And and so uh, some time has gone by in the garden for the uh, man and the woman to understand a little bit about how great God is. And now he, he entices them with the same temptation by which he fell. Lucifer wanted to be like God, so now he's going to entice them with this same thing. You eat of the fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
the lust of the eyes, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, we'll just stop there. Now, at that point, she dies spiritually, but nothing happens to anything else because she's not the de- determinative decision maker. It's the man. And all we learn, we don't know where he's been, whether he was by her side or off in another part of the garden. We don't know anything about that. God did not think it necessary for us to know. We're only told she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they were and they sewed fig leaves together and make themselves made themselves covering. See, immediately something changed. They had a complete awareness that they didn't have before, and they became extremely vulnerable. And as God came to walk in the garden, they became afraid. See, this was Satan's first assault in history, because in light of the angelic conflict, his goal is to subvert God's creation so all of God's creatures follow him. And by doing this, what happened, as I pointed out last time, he becomes the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the world. And at this act, what happens is that Adam, who was set over the creation as the image and likeness of God, loses his position. And so it now becomes part of the the uh, uh, comes under the authority of Satan and becomes his kingdom. So that in the New Testament, when we are saved, we are told what? That we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are born under the domain of Satan and under the authority of Satan. And we have a, an internal traitor called the sin nature that is attracted to Satan, all that he teaches and all that he is. And as long as we are in, uh, as long as we're unsaved, as long as we're in that kingdom of darkness, then what happens is that we have this affinity for everything evil, everything wicked, everything sinful, and we have an affinity for everything that Satan, Satan stands for. But he's got a problem. And his problem is that he wants to be God, and now he's got competition. Because every human being, all six billion of us, want to be God. So he's got to bring order into this chaos to ever have victory in the angelic conflict. Now, next time we're going to come back and look at the next assault. We're going to see how this all starts to put itself together in the flow of of human history and how God provides a perfect solution because he doesn't leave man spiritually dead. He provides a solution, a promise that through the seed of the woman, there will be a redeemer through whom all can be saved. And that salvation is determined by you, your volition, whether or not you are willing to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and to trust in him. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we've had this time to look through these things, to be reminded of our role, our place within this great angelic conflict, this invisible war that wages around us, and to realize that each one of us has a vital, significant role to play as a soldier in the army of the church, that we are involved in this conflict and we are to take up our, learn to take up our weapons of warfare that are not physical but that are spiritual 
and that all revolve around learning about all that you have provided for us and utilizing these divine assets as we face every problem and every difficulty, every temptation that we face in life. This is not really an option because the only options are success or failure, and success comes as we relax and trust in you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. Jesus Christ has already done all of the work. He paid the penalty, the complete penalty, for all your sin on Calvary's cross. So all you need to do is to accept it, to trust in him. It is a free gift. It can't be lost once you receive it. You can't give it up. You can't give it back. It's yours forever. For at the instant that you place your faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to you perfect righteousness, and he declares you justified. He regenerates you so that you are a new creature in Christ, and he gives you a new spiritual life. All of this happens simultaneously and non-experientially the instant you trust in Christ. You have all of this forever. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning to refocus our thinking, to reshape our priorities if necessary, to put the knowledge and application of your word first and foremost, because that is our mission in this spiritual warfare of the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.